Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Podcast. I'm Steve Norman, joined by Owen Hughes. Hello. Mike Shawcross. Hello. And Matt Lamborn. Hello. As we delve into our last week or so in film, um, in lieu of no real new releases being seen by many of us <laughs> this week, or much worth writing home about this week, decided to bring back Triple Bill. We'll be looking at our three favourite child acting performances. Uh, we've also got what we've been watching uh, the news, but we'll start off with the quiz where last time Owen Owen triumphed in a winner-takes-it-all showdown. Yeah, me... Jackson and Brooker won it for me in the end. Yeah. Yeah. An um, Albert Pion-themed quiz, it was. That was a yeah. great quiz, by the way. I really enjoyed listening to that. Well, thank you very much. It was very, very funny. <laughs> yes. But I made you watch an Albert Pion film. You did. You did indeed. And Which I one was, did you go for? I was uh, so grateful for this. <laughs> I went for uh, Omega Doom. Yes. Which was um, interesting to say the least. <laughs> interesting. It was about some cyborg, cyborgs against robots. It's Yeah, it's basically it's your Jimbo with robots. And cyborgs. I mean... Yeah, exactly. Nope, it's American with Rutger Hauer in the lead role as an evil robot who has his evil circuits destroyed and just becomes like a wandering samurai type thing, but with a gun. Yeah. um... (laughs) You don't seem as enthusiastic about it as I was. No, but the thing is, you this isn't this isn't insult to you by any means, but you you like films like this. I just find them a bit. (laughs) Some films like this I like, but generally just find them a bit like, ugh, a bit dumb and a bit annoying and a bit crap. I think you've got got to kind of look past the production values with these sort of films. So like, it's about the concept, it's about the imagination that goes into crafting it, and a little bit about how well the story is worked within its limited confines. And I can understand why it wouldn't appeal because some of it is pretty pretty badly acted and a bit annoying and it's obviously very cheap um, but for sort of a 1996 B movie I, I think it's actually one of his best films there's certainly worse films around it was just yeah it wasn't one it didn't it didn't hold my attention it didn't even do that I mean I watched all of it obviously but it didn't particularly hold my my attention well 
at least you gave it a go, I suppose. Yes, which is better than I can say for some of the films that I've uh, <laughs> asked to watch for this. Yeah. And it's a step up, of course, from Kill Keith. I didn't give you a bad film to watch. I gave you uh, one that I quite liked to watch. Yes. So we've, we've passed the Kill Keith curse over to Tony for Black Hole Cinema. Yeah, he, yeah he's going to enjoy that one. <laughs> uh, so yeah, onto the quiz itself. I'm back in back in the chair, if there is such thing as a chair for us. Uh, I've gone back to the old format because I didn't give myself enough time to prepare to make different <laughs> like Owen. So I'll just be reading out an actor or actress's um, filmography, and I'm going to start off in 2002 with Eight Mile. Matt. Yes, Matt. Mackay Pfeiffer. Who? Mackay Pfeiffer? <laughs> Probably not him. Not, <laughs> no. <laughs> Anyone else want to have a guess? I'll have a guess at Eminem. No. No. Okay. In 2004, they're in The Manchurian Candidate. I haven't seen these, and I don't know who's in both. Um... Anthony Mackie. You are correct. Oh, wow. In, in your assumption. Yeah. I was going to go with Million Dollar Baby and go through the Hurt Locker and end up on uh, Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Yeah, got it for that. Yeah. yeah, I should have had it by then. Or Pain and Gain, you could have had. I'd have guessed it at Pain and Gain, I think. Well, we didn't yeah. get that far. You didn't guess it quick enough. Damn. So what do we win? Um, nothing yet. Or, or ever. Just pride. Pride. Nothing but pride. I've got enough pride as it is. <laughs> I think what you should win is making Steve do a better quiz next week. You get to choose what type of quiz he has to do, I think. What, because you lost that one, you want a different kind of quiz? <laughs> Not that I'm bitter or anything, but yes. Throw a kettle over a pub. <laughs> That's a bit hard to do on a podcast. I could just say I've done it. That's the real quiz. Uh, so yes, that's the quiz. I've been losing one nil already. Not a very good start for him, but never mind. <laughs> we must go on. Uh, we're on to the news, uh, where a film festival where me and Owen struggled to pronounce the name in French last week has happened. <laughs> yeah, Cannes or the cat. Yeah, just we'll keep calling it Cannes just to annoy Jackson. It's Le Grand Film Festival. God, Jesus! Don't start that again. It's finished. It's closed. It's over. And they've announced their winner. So the Palm Door this year, the big prize, that, that, that the big award that's announced at every Cannes Film Festival, um, this year presented by the Coward Brothers. It went to a French film called Deepan by a director called Jacques Odiard. I think that's how you pronounce his name. But he's probably most famous for doing A Prophet. Um, and he did Rust and Bone, which was quite highly ranked in our 2012 Bell Critics Awards, I think mainly because James loved it and pressured everyone into voting for it. I liked it, I thought it was excellent. Uh, I wasn't so keen on it, I'll be honest. I, I didn't think that much of it. Not that I, I, did, I didn't dislike it, I just thought it was very Eurodrama. Uh, I didn't think it was that outstanding, but obviously I'm in the minority because it did really well, won loads of awards, got a lot of critical praise, so... Um, yeah, so it's the same guy who's directed this film, Deepan, which is about, um, well, I'll just read you its description. An ex-Tamil tiger soldier from Sri Lanka makes his way to Paris with a woman and a young girl 
posing with them as a family in order to secure political asylum. So I'm sure it's very clever. It probably has a lot of satire about uh, immigration and the sort of politics that are occurring in France at the moment about that. But, you know, it doesn't sound that appealing to me. I'll just take their word for it that it was the best film at Cannes and, and yeah. I mean, have any of you guys seen any of his other films to comment on? Can't say I have, unfortunately. No, unfortunately, no. my research is once again poor. Yeah, so Best Director didn't go to the Jack Yard. It went to um, a Taiwanese director, Hu Xiao Zhen. I'm going to guess that's how you pronounce it. Um, it's as bad as, as Steve's French accent, so I apologise. Oh. Uh, but he won uh, yeah, the Best Director for his film called The Assassin, um, which is sort of a period drama set in the um, Tang Dynasty period in Chinese history. Um, but what's quite interesting to me about it is it stars an actress called Xu Qi, who is pr actually a pretty good Chinese actress, who um, I know from Journey to the West. She was really funny in Journey to the West. She was in Legend of the Fist, The Return of Chen Zhen, which has Donnie Yen in. So I'm assuming you've seen that, Mike, being a big Donnie Yen fan. Uh, I haven't, no. No? Okay. No, not yet. And I want to see Journey to the West as well. Yeah, well, I recommend Journey to the West. I was waiting for that for ages to come out because it's by um fellow who did Kung Fu Hustle, whose name's just on it. Stephen Chow. Stephen Chow, yeah. Yeah, so it's got his typical sense of humour in there. So it's really worth a watch. Um, but also she was in The Transporter, the first Transporter, which I think is what most people are going to recognise her from. Uh, so, yeah, so... I'm kind of interested to see it. These Japanese and Korean and Chinese period dramas are a little bit boring to me, but I think I'll probably give it a go just because it's you don't generally see them winning awards at film festivals like this. So, you know, not for a long time, not since stuff like Case of Flying Daggers and things like that. So, fingers crossed on this one. Best actor went to a guy called Vincent Linden, who's a star of loads of French films, including a credited appearance as... A Very Drunk Man. That was his credit in La Haine, which is an amazing film. Um, that went to him for The Measure of a Man. Best Actress went to two separate people. Went to both Rooney Mara, who's uh, obviously from Social Network, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Uh, side Effects is what I really like her in. I think she's fantastic in Side Effects. But this went to a film called Carol, where she stars with Kate Blanchett. as, as two. I think they're two lesbians in that film. Um, set in 1950s New York, so probably quite controversial in some some ways, but she's you know, been very highly praised for, for that, and it's pretty astonishing to actually get an award ahead of Kate Blanchett in a film you star with Kate Blanchett. That's got to take some going. And also, Emmanuel Burkhart won an award for Monroy, which um, is interesting because she, she was the director of a film called Standing Tall, which is the film that opened this year's Cannes Film Festival. But she wasn't starring in that, so she seems to have picked up an award for acting in something else, which she didn't direct. But, uh, yeah, some other awards that, that were won at Cannes this year, Grand Prix Award went to a film called Son of Saul by uh, Laszlo Niemes. Uh, the Jury Prize, Grand Jury Prize, went to The Lobster by Yago Lantimos. And the Best Screenplay went to Mikel Franco for Chronic. So... You can check them all out online, of course. I don't think there's any point in us going over these films in too much detail, particularly as we don't get invited to Cannes. We don't, we don't get press accreditation to Cannes, funnily enough. 
So we just have to read what other people have said about it. So okay. I'm sure we'll cover some of them eventually, but uh, not at this particular moment in time. What, what do we get press accreditation for? The Glasgow Film Festival. We've got press accreditation for that. True. Um, we have had some press accreditation for other things that we've been to, I think. I think, uh, what was it that James got some press accreditation for? I think it was the, that zombie film festival that was in Leicester. Oh, right. Yeah. So we do occasionally. We're not we're not that bad. We also get screeners every so often. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. We don't get press for London Film Festival or we don't get invited to the, you know, Toronto International Film Festival or any of the big ones. But, yes. Um, How many iTunes reviews do we need to get into Cannes? <laughs> I'm not sure what the criteria is anymore. I think you have to have a certain amount of things published on your website or your magazine um, with a certain readership. So, yeah. We don't have any, like, readers as such, do we? Do we get many, like, website hits compared to our podcast downloads? Podcast downloads tend to be about 200 to 250 per episode within the first week or so. Um I think the website hits are usually, we hit about 100 to 125 a day. There you go, that's enough for the Isle of Man Film Festival. <laughs> they got a film festival at the Isle of Man. They do. Oh, hey, there you go, you can apply for press accreditation. I'll, I'll present them with our <laughs> numbers and, and wow them with yes. our viewership. Oh, yeah, didn't Mark Commode go to it last year? Didn't he host yeah. it or something? I have no idea. No. <laughs> I think, yeah, but... Um... We could probably get it for some. We can apply anyway. It's nothing to stop us. Mm. The worst they can say is no. And they will. They will say no. Anyway, that's all for the news as not a great deal has been happening. No one's died or anything like that and nothing exciting has been happening other than Le Con Film Festival. Yeah, well, the only other news is we were on the Quizcast, the second incarnation yeah. of the Quizcast, which was hosted by Tony from uh, Tony Black from Black Hole Cinema. Lost once again... But uh, this time it wasn't so much Owen's fault, more both. It was both our faults, really. Yeah. We were both to blame on that that episode. (laughs) I think mainly it's because Matt wasn't there this time. We were were both bad, whereas it wasn't the case of Owen taking things too seriously. Exactly. I didn't blow it spectacularly like last time, so... Mm. But we still lost. Yes, lost badly. Anyway. Um, yeah. But you can, just before we move on, just to say you can get the latest quiz cast from Black Hole Perds, which is blackholeprds.podmatic.com. There we go. There you go. go or check our Twitter Twitter feed for it. We've probably retweeted it a few times now. Yeah, go and have yourselves a good old listen to that. We'll be back after this break with what we've been watching. <laughs> In part two, there's what we've been watching where we take a look at films we've seen in the last week or so, not necessarily new releases. Um, so, Owen, why don't you start us off for this section with what you've seen in the last week or so? Well, I've um, been to a Q&A with Al Pacino at the Hammersmith Apollo, which was really interesting. It was really good. I really enjoyed it. Um, it. It's kind of one of those things that threw me a little bit because Pacino is just so camp. I had no idea that he was very theatrical. 
Because he still thinks of himself as like a stage actor. Because, you know, I, I don't know whether you're aware of this or not, but he won a Tony Award before he was in Godfather, before he started making films, really. So he's, you know, he's very much of the stage. But it was, yeah, it was interesting, some of the things he talked about. Uh, I'll just give you, like, a, a snippet of some of the things that he said during this, this Q&A. So, like, one of the things that really surprised me was that he said he really wanted to get fired from The Godfather. Every day he went to filming, he hated it. He was hoping Francis Ford Coppola would sack him, which I had no idea about. I just didn't... Yeah, so what, what happened was... Um, because, you know, he's just this, this short guy, Al Pacino. There's no getting around it. It makes, like, light of it himself when he's talking about filming The Godfather. Because he said uh, Francis Ford Coppola wanted him to wear lifts in his shoes. And he tried it, and it made him look like he had a wooden leg. So he just said, no, I'm not doing that. I'll just have to be short. So immediately, the, the cast and the crew and the cameramen and everyone would just be, like, sniggering and laughing to themselves through all of the serious scenes that he was trying to do, because they just didn't believe he was this hard man, this gangster. Which is amazing, considering, you know, the performance he puts in, it's just unbelievable that they wouldn't, they wouldn't take him seriously. But apparently the studio, I think it was, was it Universal who did the, the Godfather or Paramount? They just didn't want him. They had no interest. They wanted to get someone like Robert Redford or Paul, Paul Newman in to play Michael Corleone. And... Uh, yeah, so they were really dead set against it. It was literally only Francis Ford Coppola who wanted him in the role. Um, so that was fascinating. I thought that was quite quite interesting. And yeah, so it, it was just quite a, an interesting evening all round, really. Uh, well, yeah, you'll like this, Steve. One of the things he said, someone asked him a question. What's the biggest like regret that he had of like films that he's passed the opportunity on? What, what roles has he been offered that he turned down that he regrets? And his reply was, he doesn't really regret any, but he made Harrison Ford's career because he was given first dibs on starring in Star Wars as Han Solo. And he said he read it, read the script. He didn't get it, so he just passed it on. And then it was eventually offered to Harrison Ford. Yeah, who was apparently working as a carpenter on the set at the time or something like that. It's yeah, it was something it's like a, that. It's a story, how true that is, that actually don't. And didn't he take a paid deal where he got like a very tiny percentage of the entire gross of the movie rather than like a salary, which has obviously made him many, many millions more than he would have done I otherwise? Think, I think a lot of the people who been, were involved in making the original Star Wars and about the whole trilogy mm. certainly had a percentage of the merchandising deal because the studio didn't have much faith in it. Yeah. Um, so they all had a, a bit of a percentage of the merchandising deal and, and coined it in off the back of that. They did, yeah. But, um, yeah, I can't imagine Al Pacino as Han Solo. It just doesn't... doesn't no, he, I, can't, I can't imagine him in a kind of a, a fun role, if that makes sense. Yeah, certainly not around that time when he was being nominated for Oscars no. left, right and centre. Whereas you see sort of De Niro doing a few comedies now and, and that kind of thing, like Meet the Parents and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. You, I can't ever see Pacino really doing that. Yeah, so OK, one of the other questions that was asked of Pacino by uh, a member of the audience was, um, you know, who's the, the star that you've appeared in a film alongside that's like wowed you? Because, you know, obviously Pacino, he's been in films with Marlon Brando. He's been in films with Robert De Niro. Um, and actually what, what he said was the only one that's really took his breath away acting opposite was Anthony Hopkins 
He said he just filled the room and it's just the look in his eyes. He just said he, he just takes your breath away when, when you're acting opposite Anthony Hopkins, which is kind of cool. You know, the, this, this, the stature of the, the people he's been in films alongside. So, so it was a really interesting evening. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and his new film, Daniel Collins, looks okay. I'll probably see it anyway. But um, what happened was, because because I was going to this, I watched a few of his films that I hadn't seen before. Some of his more critically acclaimed films. So for the first time last week, ever, first time I've ever seen it, I watched Scarface. Whoa. Yeah. I love Scarface. I really liked it. I've heard wow. so many people slag it off, say it's like this adolescent fantasy about, you know, like a self-made man and it's just for teenagers and stuff. I thought it was really good. I really liked it. I thought this, this it was very stylish and very of its time. But it's, it's a really entertaining film. It didn't feel like a two and a half hour long film to me. But, it's a great um, film. I, I don't have a lot of criticism you can put to, to Scarface. It's It's been in my DVD collection a very long time. It's, I, think it's seen it. I think I've only seen it once, but it was a really good watch. Great film when I did see it. But mm. And it, it basically is reasons. Grand Theft Auto Vice City, the movie. <laughs> it is, yeah. I mean, I, there are, I did have some problems with it. I thought the acting from most of the people around Al Pacino was pretty dire. I thought, um, I can't remember the actress's name now, but the, the person who plays his sister. Mary Elizabeth Mascantonio. Yeah, she was just really terrible. She, yeah, she, she was pretty raw at the time, to be fair, but yeah, she's pretty yeah, bad. Yeah. But um, I also watched, for the first time, And Justice for All, which he was nominated for an Oscar for, uh, where he plays like a um, defence lawyer who faces a bit of a moral, ethical quandary about representing a judge who's being tried on a rape charge that was really good in terms of like his performance it was just clearly clearly he you can understand why he was nominated for an oscar for that there were scenes in it where he just is absolutely outstanding um i had a few issues with the film i don't think the ending really worked very well and the attempts to put all these bits of like humour in it fall a bit flat, but Pacino is fantastic in it. And finally, just today, um, I watched Scent of a Woman for the first time ever as well, which is the only film he actually won an Oscar for, would you believe? You know, nominations for stuff like The Godfather films, for Serpico, for Dog Day Afternoon, for And Justice for All, as I mentioned, um, and Dick Tracy as well, apparently, got him an Oscar nomination. Um, it was only Scent of a Woman that he won for. Which yeah. is another just fantastic performance from him. It's just... Have you guys seen it? Am I the last person in the world to see Scent of a Woman? No, I haven't seen it. Yes. Yeah. No, I think it's one that's, that's past me. But so what's your favourite Pacino film, then? Favourite Pacino film? Probably The Godfather's the best film he's been in. Yeah. But I do really like him in Dog Day Afternoon and Serpico. Uh, I've got to hold my hands up and say... I'd be happy with any of those three. Yeah. Godfather 1 and 2 feature quite highly on my list of all-time favourites. But if I was to exclude those two, I I really like Carlito's Way as well. That's like the last of his big films, I think, that I haven't yet seen. Oh, that's a must-watch. That's excellent. I was going to try and squeeze it in this afternoon, but it's also another one that's quite long, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit of an epic, but well worth it on a rainy day. Because, you know, I've seen stuff like Heat, which I 
I don't love Heat. I think Heat's a good film, but I don't love it personally. But he's, again, good in that, isn't he? Do you know? Um, and, you know, but he makes really long movies. Donnie Brasco's really long, and I don't particularly particularly like Donnie Brasco, but I like Pacino. Um, but, yeah, no, Dog Day Afternoon or Serpico, if we're excluding the Godfather films, I think, are my favourites. So, yeah, I've only really been watching films this week that I'd seen previously. Um, so, it's a bit like Avengers Assembled that was on BBC One on Bank Holiday Monday evening. Uh, nothing much to say about it, just, A, how watchable it is. You can just kind of put it on, sit there quite mm. happily, and watch it. Dip in and out if you, you know, if you're doing stuff, it's quite good to have on in the background, uh, as well as indulging yourself in it and watching it properly. And just how much better it is than Age of Ultron. <laughs> yes, it's just it's unbelievable, isn't it? I caught a bit of it on TV as well. Um, it's just I can't get over the dip in quality between those two films. But it's just so much fun, isn't it? It is. It's it's really well written. The characters get a lot to do. Each um, the ill comes together. The action scenes are a lot better as well. But the it's bad just... the bad guy's better. He's more convincing as a bad guy. He's more intimidating. You got even though you know the Avengers will win, you know you feel more of a threat from him than you did from Ultron. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. He's he's a, he's a better villain. Is uh, Loki certainly more cartoonish or comic book um, and a lot more fun. Yeah, I mean, I don't think... I, I didn't really have a problem so much with Ultron in Age of Ultron. I think the, the problem I had with Ultron was the way he was used. So it, it could they could have really gone hell for leather and painted it as an Ultron versus Iron Man story. Or an Ultron versus Tony Stark story, which would have been so much better. But instead, it felt like the rivalry between him and Stark was a bit of filler. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and it, it also felt like they were trying to shoehorn too much in in Age of Ultron. It was, was too, too many plots and subplots and characters. And, yeah, I mean, talking about long films as well with Pacino, that is a re- Age of Ultron was mm. so bloated and yet felt like so much was missing. They cut loads out though, didn't they? They cut the Thor storyline out. Yeah, yeah. but they left, left... they left one bit in which made just made yeah, no makes sense. No sense. Though, it? It's just pointless. Yeah. yeah. I, d- that well, was I think that's, that was the end of Whedon, wasn't it? He'd had enough. I yeah. think you could tell he was just tired of it all. To yeah. Be well, I think as well in Avengers Assemble, it doesn't matter which two or three characters are on screen together, they they all work. So if you've got Hulk and Thor or Iron Man and Thor or Iron Man and Thor and Captain America all on screen together, it all clicks into place. Whereas in Age of Ultron, some of it just sounds a bit clunky. and It's forced, isn't it? It mm. feels more forced in Age of Ultron. Yeah. Hmm. Um, also, been catching up with the last few episodes of season five of Game of Thrones. I still don't get what the big deal is about it. I, I like it. Don't get me wrong; it's good. It, it keeps me watching, but it's not the. Uh, it's, I don't get the hype around it. I don't see it as this great, you know, one of the best TV shows ever, which people seem to claim it is. It's just. I'm good. I'm rapidly losing patience with Game <laughs> of Thrones. I, I've watched it intently for all five seasons up until where we are now. And the first four series all very captivating and kept me gripped. This season is such a slow burner, and I know they generally are, but I'm willing something big to happen, and it just doesn't seem like it's coming. I don't think I'm going to get the big payoff in season five that we usually get. 
Hopefully I'm wrong, but yeah, I, I'm struggling as, as much as you are, Steve, on, on this season. It, it's it's almost boring. It, 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 it looks for, good, though, doesn't it? it? Oh, yeah, just some of the sets and the designs and stuff is quite rightly what it's lauded for. And, uh, Mike, what have you seen in the last week or so? I watched uh, The Beaver, which Hans in for. I watched it because it was shown at Cannes. And I thought I'd watch it this month. Um, directed and starring Jodie Foster, but the main star of it is Mel Gibson, with Jansen Yelchin and Jennifer Lawrence in, which I didn't even know they were both <laughs> in it. I was quite surprised that when they turned up, I thought, really? <laughs> um, basically, it's the story of Walter, who's played by Mel Gibson, who is in rather deep depression, and it's destroying his family. After a while, his wife kicks him out. And while he's throwing some things away, he finds his son's beaver, which he then proceeds to wear constantly in the shower and everything and communicates to everybody through the beaver, which he finds he can do. And it lifts his depression for a while. When you say beaver, you mean... Yeah, it's a, ha- it's a hand puppet beaver. Okay. So I take it none of you seen this. I've not no. seen it, no. All right, it's it is quite interesting. I mean, it deals with depression and mental illness, and it is it's quite harrowing at times. But Gibson is brilliant; he really is outstanding in it. And to a degree, I w- wonder if it mirrors his personal life at the time when he filmed it, because he was going through some stuff then. Um, overall, it's a good watch, but it's. It doesn't really... It's Gibson that is the good watch. Everything mm. else around it isn't... Lawrence is okay, Foster's okay, but they're all just not enough to make it ex- an exceptional film. Uh, and then in the end, there's a bit of a brutal way that he sort of gets the beaver off his arm, literally chops it off. Wow, okay. Big grim. Very grim. Um, but he then starts to confront his depression and the, the family reunite to a degree. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think I'd ever watch it again, that's for certain. But just for Gibson's performance, it's worth seeing. Hmm. Did you say it was being shown at Cannes Film Festival? It was shown at Cannes um, back... Ooh, wild, uh, 2012, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it was shown at Cannes. Okay. I don't um, think it got very well, got critical acclaim. I think it was quite panned by critics at the time, yeah. which is probably why, why I didn't rush out to see it. But, no, I was quite surprised with Gibson's performance, actually. It's very, yeah. very good. It's got 6.7 on IMDb. I know that's not always the best representation of a well, film. Well, that's not bad. I mean, 6.7. That's all right. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth a watch. It's just Foster's not used. I mean, I know she's directing. I know it must be difficult to direct and act as well. But she's just underused. She doesn't really bring the emotion mm. to how, not depressed she is, but what it's doing to the family and her. It, mm it doesn't come through enough in a performance so yeah. just I give it I think if I was to score I'd give it three, three, three out of five mm, yeah about the same then as, yeah, as what's on IMDb yeah okay 
Okay. Um, and Matt, finally for this part of the podcast, what have you seen? Yeah, uh, I've been watching another Mel Gibson movie. Um, <laughs> given that we probably all very recently watched Mad Max Fury Road, and I absolutely loved it. Like, it's so great, isn't it? so exciting. It was such a an adrenaline pump movie. You know, I came home, I was on a high, I downloaded the soundtrack, which is good, but not as good as when you throw it in with all the action. So, but never mind. I've never what's, actually what's seen. The, what's the point of having a soundtrack if you haven't got a man playing a flame for a guitar on the front of the <laughs> Exactly. It when makes you not, drive faster. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can play like Crazy Taxi in real life. Yeah. Listen to the Mad Max soundtrack or something of that ilk. But anyway, I went back to try and visit the original trilogy because I hadn't actually seen them before. Shame on me. And so I've started with the first one. And given I was quite excited, I've downloaded all three films onto my Skybox, fully intent on watching all of them. However, I have been stopped ever so slightly in my tracks with the first one. It's very dull, <laughs> unfortunately. Um I can only imagine it must be one of those ones where you, you had to have been there at the time to appreciate it fully because it's still quite highly rated on IMDb and whatnot. So there's there's something there I'm probably missing, whether it's a certain cool factor or what a throwback to the, the period of time. But I just found that not a lot actually happens until the last 15 minutes. You know, they spend well over an hour building up the state of the world and it's on the brink of... Uh, the collapse of order, but not quite there yet. And you've got these these bunch of bikers roaming around the outback and, and owning the streets, essentially. And you've got the the little unit of police officers trying to maintain order with almost hopeless odds. And it's just not very exciting. I mean, the opening chase scene's brilliant, mm-hmm. if you've seen that. And there's a particular scene whereby they're racing through... Um, a little community and a, a baby walks into the middle of the road and you think that they're going to smash into the kid but they manage to two cars literally go either side of it by, by a whisker and the kid survives but that's pretty exciting but the rest of the movie it's, it's very dull I found the use of music in the film was really odd like they were using <laughs> these like heroic like radio anthems whenever <laughs> Max was actually doing anything. I don't think it's meant to be that type of movie. Um, yeah, I just found the whole thing confusing. I found the ending unsatisfying. Um, so I am going to plod on and watch part two, but I'm slightly less enthusiastic about it as I was after coming home from seeing Fury Road, unfortunately. Isn't I think better. Two's meant to be the best one. I yeah. haven't seen two. I've only seen the first one that you've seen, Matt, and Fury Road. Uh, but I think the thing about Mad Max is I didn't like it that much either. I thought it was okay, but it's all about the context of when it was made, as you said earlier. And about, I think Brooker mentioned it as well last week on the podcast, that this is a pre-80s action film, mm-hmm. which is really, you know, you have to take into consideration the mould hadn't really been set for action films yet. There wasn't a sort of standard genre for, gener- yeah, not generic, but a standard genre for like what an action film should be. So it's a lot of talking, a lot of things happening to people in terms of story and plot, and then everything thrown in at the end. Yeah, but even that, I don't think it does very well. I mean, if you compare it to something else that came out the same year, The Warriors, 
is so much better than Mad Max in terms of its use of dialogue. And whilst it isn't, it's supposed to be an action movie, but it's not action packed. You know, it's very dialogue driven and it takes a long time to sort of build up to the famous climactic scene where they eventually get home. But that is far more entertaining than Mad Max. Uh, and they're perhaps, let's say, considered on a sort of equal footing mm. when it comes mm. to like cult claim. I don't think that's that's necessarily fair. To be honest, I think The Warriors is a, is a much better movie. Uh, oh yeah, I really like The Warriors. So I struggle to see where the love for Mad Max is based on the original. So again, unless you're uh, someone around at the time and you're a big fan of the sequel, perhaps, and that improves your opinion of the first, then I can understand, but I'll have to see if I reach the same conclusion when I watch the sequel, but not particularly impressed. And the only good thing I can say about it was that the car's cool, <laughs> as everyone seems to keep going on about. And it's a, it's a pretty short movie. It's, it's, it's literally 90 minutes on the spot, so it's quite easy to digest you know, a quick late night movie before you go to bed. But beyond that, it, it didn't do anything for me. So I'll let you know I get on with the sequels, but not particularly enamoured by the first one. Okay. And that's the end then of part two. Up next is our triple bill of um, our favourite child performances in films. <laughs> In the final part of this week's podcast, then we'll be doing a welcome return triple bill. We look at our favourite free child actor performances from the world of film. I think Owen, this was inspired by Poltergeist having a, a re-release <laughs> or remake or something in the cinema. Yeah, there which... was a cu- couple of reasons, really. One of them is that we, when we did our 150th episode, we had a load of suggestions from people for triple bills. That we could do. Because remember we each picked a triple bill. Um, we didn't use all of them. Because there were only five of us. And we had about 20-25 suggestions to, to choose from. Um, so this one is actually. Uh, this particular triple bill. On three favourite child performances. Was nominated by Andrew Olcock. Um, at Andy underscore Olcock. On, uh, on Twitter. So it seemed quite a good time to roll this out because, yeah, Poltergeist remake is in cinemas, was released on Friday. Um, And it's, you know, that film's synonymous with child performances or the kind of, there's a bit of like a a curse, supposedly, because if you didn't, if you weren't already aware, the, the two people who play the daughters of the family in Poltergeist, both, Poltergeist, Poltergeist, both died really quite young. Um, so Heather O'Rourke, who plays Carol Ann, the young girl in the film, she died when she was 12 due, due to a septic shock, apparently, while making the third Pol- Poltergeist film. And the other daughter, um, Dana, who is played by Dominique Dunn, was murdered by her ex-husband when she was 22, which was like within six months of Poltergeist actually coming out in the cinema. So there's this whole, like, curse that's supposedly around it. You know, like, you get the Superman curse that develops around that and so on, playing these characters. So, yeah, so it's quite, like, famous for this. So I thought, well, whilst we're doing it, we will sort of pay tribute to to people who... young people who act in films. And this triple bill suggestion from Andrew 
seemed like the perfect time to to include that. Good. Uh, mm. Well, I'll start us off then with my three. First of all is going to be uh, Henry Thomas, who played Elliot in E.T. <laughs> uh, didn't really do a lot else with his career. Well, he's been in lots of things, but didn't really hit the heights and hit the acclaim and, and fame of, of E.T., where he did pick up a lot of nominations for kind of best young actor and best newcomer and things like that. And it's just to think, I think E.T.'s obviously going to be a, a personal, not a personal favourite, but a favourite for a lot of us or one of the favourites for a lot of us, mm-hmm. especially films of that kind. And he's obviously acting mostly with a puppet or a animatronic thing, something that's not real. And he really kind of manages to get that feeling of friendship across Yeah, it's been um, a long time since I've seen E.T. It's years and years ago. But, uh, yeah, I used to like it when I was younger. I used to be terrified of the E.T., never mind the kid. Yeah. Uh, Second up is from 2010, Chloe Grace Moretz in (laughs) Kick-Ass as as Hit Girl. Um, It's always funny seeing kids uh, swear in films. I think she was 11 when this was made. (laughs) This was just sort of beyond anything I've seen. A, a, a ch- Obviously, it's a comic book film. So it's a bit everything's a bit exaggerated and over the top and everything. But yeah, yeah. she calls someone a cunt in it. Yeah. It's just okay, like, you cunt. I'm yeah, yeah. listening. They were bawling out laughing when <laughs> yeah. that scene came through. Oh god, it was great. I imagine she probably had fun filming it, being 11 years old and being able to drop a C bomb. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it was just probably loads of child psychologists on set as well. It's just a fantastic performance and just a lot of fun um, in a quite mental film. And she really is good in that. Yeah. I mean, it's not just like it's a funny... She is she's very good. She's, she's, great... she's good in general. Have you seen um, Texas Killing Fields? Yes, no. she's brilliant in that. Oh, wow. she, she's quite prolific in that little stage of her career at such a young age. Mm. And kind of at the opposite end of... Um, child performances obviously you have Chloe Grace Moretz being absolutely mental and swearing <laughs> and and in an upbeat kind of way I suppose in, in Kick-Ass this one I've gone for Cody Smith McPhee for The Road he was the, the, <laughs> he was the boy in The Road and it just very good performance in such a, a miserable downbeat but very good film yeah, I remember when I saw it in the cinema and I thought he was quite annoying because he, he says Papa all the time, doesn't he? And after a while, yeah. that, that grated on me a little bit. But I, when I rewatched it, uh, you're right, he, he is really understated in that film. Because there is really just, I know there's obviously other characters, there is really just two characters mm-hmm. in that film, mm-hmm. the the dad and the boy, and that's that's it. So yeah. he has to he has to do a fair bit of acting, I suppose. And it does it well, kind of gets across the bleakness and the despair and all that kind of thing that goes along with the road. It's a hard watch, isn't it? It's a good oh. film, but my God, you don't really want Because but... I, I read the book before I saw the film. And yeah. I could, when I went to watch the film, I completely forgot about the uh, hatch. Yeah. I'm not going to say any more. But that, that particular scene in the house with the hatch was so grim, so shocking. It's, yeah. 
very disturbing. I think the the moment you really get to see that kid act really well is when um, they meet the the blind homeless guy. Yeah. I think there's that particular scene. You you really get to see him be at his best, really. Yeah. Don't don't if you've got plans for a day, don't ever think oh watch the watch, watch film watch the watch oh the road because then you won't want to do anything. I'll just be like, <laughs> fuck this. What's the point? I'm not going out now. I'm just going to stay in, draw the curtains, and never cry. <laughs> it's bleak. Yeah. Yes. Um, Owen, oh, so what's your three? Okay, so um, I almost chose Hit Girl. I was going to choose Hit Girl, and then I decided not to just at the last minute. I almost chose one that I know Mike has picked, and then I had to quickly scrib- scribble it uh, <laughs> out of my list and find something else. So the first one I'm going to pick is Pierce Gagnon in Looper, who's the seven-year-old kid who... Um, plays oh, yes. Sid Harrington. Yeah. yeah. Which, you know, for those who haven't seen Looper, it's a sort of sci-fi, futuristic, time travel thriller. And it stars some really big hitters. You know, Emily Blunt, Bruce Willis, Jeff Daniels, Paul Dano, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It's got a really good cast. I kind of like the, the crime element to the story as well, with these hired guns killing off people in the future who are sent back from in time from their future. Um, but in the future, there's this this rainmaker, some religious nutter with incredibly powerful telekinetic abilities who's going around killing all these loopers. Um, and it turns out, it transpires, this seven-year-old kid, uh, Sid, who's played by Pierce Gagnon, is possibly the rainmaker in the future. Uh, it's really good. The whole film feels a little bit noirish at times, um, whilst also being very contemporary in its style. Uh, but all the usual suspects are good. Bruce Willis, even, is good. He puts in a good acting performance, I would say, rather than just turning up and playing Bruce Willis. But Pierce Gagnon, he just, you know, he's a seven-year-old kid who pretty much steals every scene he's in. There are scenes he's in with Emily Blunt, scenes he's in with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and it's him that you're more interested in, which is amazing for someone that kid, uh, for, for someone that young. Um, and it's not really like a... a a kid's role either. It's not really a typical child's performance. Um, he really adds to the atmosphere of the film. Uh, and his character's really complex as well. So there's, he's got some very important parts to play in the plot and how it affects the characters around him and the things he does. Uh, I think when you when he's first introduced, you think, you think oh, it's just going to be Emily Blunt's son. He's just going to be the standard annoying little kid who gets in the way, that sort of bollocks of a storyline. But by the end, he's just like a standout character. Um, and he works really well opposite um, Gordon Levitt and, and Emily Blunt, I think. And he's weirdly funny at times, and the scenes where he's getting angry are really frightening. I mean, they're really the, the best bits of the film when, when he's letting rip, this seven-year-old kid letting rip these frustrations and... Yeah, so I think a lot of the credit, though, should go to Rian Johnson, who directed the film, for some of those scenes that he shot that were in slow motion, um, especially for how it all has the emphasis on that whole um, foreboding of what's to come, because you know this little kid who's tearing a house apart, unintentionally, subconsciously, he's tearing this house apart. He could go on to be the rainmaker who's killing off all these people in the future. Um, but yeah, Pierce Gagnon, he does an incredible job for someone someone who's so young. So that was my, my first choice. 
Am I the only one who's seen Looper? Did you watch no, it in I'm... the end? No, I've seen. Yeah, I've seen yeah. Looper. Yeah, it's great. It's a really good film, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so my second choice is from 2009. It's a film called Orphan, which is directed by a guy called Jamay Colletzera, who um, probably more known now for films like Nonstop and Unknown and Run All Night and all these thrillers that he does with Liam Neeson. But uh, in Orphan, there's a character called Esther, played by Isabel Furman, uh, who's adopted by a family. She's a bit creepy. She's a bit troubled. The sort of adoption agency where she's come from, I kind of want rid of her. Um, the film itself is, pulling it politely, not very good. The <laughs> film is not great. It's just full of really cheap, easy horror film cliches constantly. Um, it's not scary in any sense of the word. However, the redeeming feature of the film is the fact that Isabel Furman, who, who plays Esther, is just rather good. She's a really good young actress who outperforms almost all the adults in the movie. So the movie's got some quite established actors in it. So Peter Sarsgaard's in it. Vera Farmiga is in it. Um, so it can't have been easy for her to outshine these people, but she really, she really does. There's something incredibly sinister about her performance and her delivery of certain lines. Um, but she, she does everything very well. Um, she's very convincing during what is a really unbelievably ludicrous twist towards the end of the film. But she just makes the film just about watchable. You know, it's the only reason I've ever recommended Orphan to anybody is when I've said, you know, you've got to watch it for uh, Isabel Furman. She's, she's really good. And it's not Colette Serra's best film. He should kind of stick to Nice and Thrillers, I think. Oh, yes, I did Goal 2, I think. Uh, but yeah, he shouldn't, he shouldn't, he just shouldn't try anything like this again. No, no horrors, please. But um, yeah, Isabel uh, Furman's really good. Um, but my final choice is I think you've seen this, Mike. I would be really surprised if you haven't. <laughs> but it's The Host, the Korean film. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> I know you're going to talk about. Yeah, Goha Ah Sung is in it, who's the young daughter. She's um, brilliant. She's exceptional. But she's kidnapped by a monster right at the start of the film. Um, so it's a film that's directed by uh, Bong Joon-ho, who... A lot of people now will be familiar with because of Snowpiercer, I think. Um, and she also actually, uh, Go Ah Sung, actually stars in Snowpiercer. She's one of the two Korean people in the film. The other being Song Kang Ho, who is also in the host. Um, but it's got some, again, some established actors. Song Kang Ho is, uh, is probably my favourite actor working today. But you've also got Duna Bay, who's in the host, um, who was in Clade Atlas. Um, she, I think she might have been in Jupiter Ascending as well. She's a really good actress. She uh, is also in the host, but it's you know the the story is just of monsters on the loose in Seoul, um, on Seoul, just on the Han River, who snatches the young daughter of this uh, narcoleptic bloke, and his whole family band together to help save this little girl from the monster. But you get to see a lot of Go Asung's um, struggles to escape this creature's lair and this pit that she's being held in. It's it's really gross at times. She stumbles across like dead bodies. She gets attacked by the monster at, at times. Um, but she's so good. 
And I love the scene where she initially gets snatched by the creature as well. It's just the reaction on her face. It's just, it's just amazing. But um, it's such a fantastic proper creature feature moment. And the whole film is, just has that feel to it anyway. But it's, you know, the moment she appears on screen, you know she's going to add some humour to proceedings as well. She puts in a really good shift. I think as, as well, it's great to see someone so young trusted to carry large parts of the film on their own. You know, I've talked about um, Isabel Furman and, and Pierce Gagnon. You don't really get to see them so away from the rest of the cast. Whereas whereas here, Go Asun, she carries large portions of this film by herself, which she does with aplomb. She's she's really good. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm interested to follow her career. I think she was good in Snowpiercer as well. Um, but yeah, the host is great. If you've not seen it, you've just got to got to get on it. It's one of one of the the best Korean films of uh, recent times. Okay, um, Mike, what's in your three? Okay, my first one is one that I stole off um, Owen is uh, Christian <laughs> Bale for Empire of the Sun back in 1987. Yeah, he was um, 13 when he did this. Not done much acting before this film. Um, and basically got the role by Amy Irving, who was married to Steven Spielberg at the time, recommending him for a, a role that they starred together in, in Anastasia, The Mystery of Anna. However, Spielberg wasn't that impressed with Bale in that, but gave him an audition, which he beat 4,000 kids to and mm. got the film. So I've always liked this film. I've always thought it's one of Spielberg's more underrated films. I think it's um, it's got a great cast. Um, and I think Bale is really, really good in it. really like watching him. He starts off as a spoiled little brat with attitude, but by the end of the film, you really like him. And I think it's it's just the ravages of war and being alone and mm. that brings out the humanity in him and also the respect that he has for other people. Um, and to tell you the truth, playing alongside Miranda Richardson, Nigel Havers, Leslie Phillips and John Malkovich, it's it's a big film to be in for something. I mean, he's, he was quite inexperienced when he took this on and I think he did a really good job with it. And... I do like it a lot. Mm, it is very good. Um, it's one of Spielberg's best, I think. I mean, it's not quite at the level of something like Jurassic Park or Jaws. No, well, but as a, it, as, a, as a drama, it's it's probably his best drama film, I think. Yeah, he also does. He tends to shy away though from the atrocities of the war, doesn't he? He implies them, but he never mm, really mm. shows them through the film. Um, but again, it's a, it is a, it's a strong cast, decent score from Williams, and yeah, I really enjoyed Bell in this one. Uh, what's the next one on your list? Um, this one, again from 1988. This is Alex Vincent in Child's Play. <laughs> I seriously considered this one as well. Oh, really? <laughs> Well, the thing is, he's brilliant in it. He really is. He's six, and he delivers such a solid performance. It is, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, 
I know the film gets a lot of bad press for obviously events that have happened since, but it is really quite a solid little horror film in the day. And Alex Vincent, who plays Andy, the opening sequence is just brilliant because he's just this little kid looking after his mum. He's six, he's making breakfast, but he just desperately wants a good guy's doll. That's all he wants. Mm. He just wants a friend. You can just tell the loneliness in that opening sequence, and it's brilliant. He just nails it. And from there on, everything, when he goes to hospital and he's crying alone in the room, you just you just feel for him all the time. And then when the doll turns on him, <laughs> he looks petrified. He, has, he, he looks scared. And it's a brilliant performance from such a young kid. So... He's what makes that film, which is really corny, isn't it? It is, it is. But he's what makes it kind of terrifying because you obviously see it from the point of view of a young kid whose child, you know, his child's toy is doll. is trying to murder him. Yeah. It's just, yeah, fantastic. And also the fact that when he's trying to explain to everybody in the hospital that the doll is walking and talking and nobody <laughs> believes him and he's desperate, but he, he, he doesn't fall apart. I mean, he, he's just brilliant. Hmm. Really impressive. Yeah, that was a great pick. And finally? And the last one, even though he's in a film that isn't particularly great, is, um, I struggle to pronounce this, is Deag Farak, who plays the young Michael Myers in Rob Zombie's remake. Oh, okay. Well, he's, he's really quite sinister in that opening 20 minutes I mean Zombie goes for a bit more of a backstory fill in yes. Michael Myers give him a bit more life and what Farrakh does is just I mean it's just sinister it's, it's his coldness and his, the emptiness in his eyes is, is brilliant after he leaves the film when Michael Myers comes back the film falls apart he was the best thing, isn't it? It's just to go back to a point about that though, because um, that was really controversial of Rob Zombie, wasn't it? It was. Lots of I people mean... hated the fact that he'd humanized a, a you know a, a killer like Michael Myers, whose reputation was on the fact that he's just a monster. He's just this yeah. thing, and he turned him into a person and gave him this backstory as a kid and. And what yeah. his family did to him, and why, he, yeah, and why yeah. he killed, and his people bullying him, and mm. but again, but it works. Scene, I think it, it does. I think concept. it works. I think it works to the point where it becomes Michael Myers, older Michael Myers, and then it just Rob Zombie just goes hell for leather, and we'll just yeah. go over the top with everything. Um, but it's it's his performance is brilliant. Mm. It really is. And Matt, let's hear your first selection. Okay, well, I'm quite surprised I haven't had any crossover, so (laughs) I feel quite lucky at this point. Um, I'm going to start with one of my all-time favourite films of the 80s, and the triple bill I'm doing is quite associated by all three playing roles of, of teenage angst to a certain point. I'm going to start with River Phoenix's performance in Stand By Me in 1986, and he was 15 years old. 
at the time of this one. And I did consider that one. I did consider yeah, I did that as well. One. It was quite popular on Twitter. We had a couple of people say that as well, actually. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised, but very pleased that no one went for it. So, <laughs> so I get to talk about it a little bit. And I think it's quite a poignant choice because for all intents and purposes, River Phoenix only ever had the opportunity of being a child star. He didn't. Mm. only had a very limited um, window in which to, to progress out of child superstardom. And in Stand By Me, he excellently portrays the character of Chris Chambers, who's the youngest of a family of criminals and alcoholics that society have already written off. Uh, but as he proves in the movie, his heart's in the right place and he just wants to be judged on his own character, not the legacy that his family has forbode him into. And Stan Miami's got a, a particularly great ensemble cast of talented young actors. I could have picked a number of them out of this one, but um, Rivers is my personal favourite of the bunch. And he's the bond that keeps the group together as the unofficial leader and he portrays incredible emotion in the role as the street tough kid that has a very sensitive and vulnerable core. And whilst I was doing some research f- into the film in preparation for tonight, and yeah, I actually did some work, so <laughs> yay, yay for me. Um, I found a, an interesting quote uh, from the Washington Post from when the film first came out, and this came directly from River Phoenix, and he said he identified so much with the role of Chris Chambers that if I hadn't had his family to go and see after the shoot, he would have probably had to see a psychiatrist. That's how much the role meant to him and how much it was portrayed or mirrored his personal experiences as a youngster. So you can definitely see how that comes through in his performance in the movie. It's probably arguably his most famous role. And as I say, it's one of my favourite films of the 80s and I really just wish he would had survived longer perhaps even still be with us today so we could have really seen reached his pinnacle but he, he certainly achieved a lot in a very short space of time in his brief career hmm yeah no it's it is a shame um and he is brilliant in in stand by me yeah okay, what's what's your second choice okay a second one and i'm pretty sure again you, you've all seen this one and and will appreciate the performance of Natalie Portman and Leon. Oh, yes. Yeah, another one we had someone tweet to us as well. Yeah, another good choice. Yeah, so this one's from 1994. And again, Natalie Portman was just 14 years old in this one, although the maturity of the performance is that of someone much older. Mm. Um, You could already tell at this very early stage of her career that she was destined for greatness. It's such a great performance uh, in what is a, a very, very good film in general. Um, I think Leon's is memorable for a lot of people for its sleek action scenes and the big performances by Jean Reno and, and Gary Oldman. But it's for me, it's Portman that stands out as a massive figure in the movie. And it's her deep relationship with Leon. Whilst obviously because of her age, it's not sexual or physical. It They have a very deep love between the two of them, which makes the events in the movie so tragically sad, but impactful. And I think you really sort of feel empathy for the two of them and what they're going through in the movie. And it's a lot of it's down to, to her performance. And it's fair to say she's had a great career on, on the back of what was such a massive accomplishment of a movie at such a young age. And I take it you've all seen Leon and, and I think we all universally mm-hmm. like it, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. definitely. Did you watch the 
extended version or is this? I can't remember. It's been a while since I've seen it, but because the extended version doesn't that sort of imply more of the connection between the two? There's a few more scenes that actually make the bond even stronger. Hmm, not sure. <laughs> when you okay, is that like it's a... more of a fa- I always got it more of a bit of a fatherly figure to mm. her, but rather than a lot of people sort of think, oh, it's a bit, is a bit, is it a bit sexual? But I think it's more of a a fatherly figure. Rather, but does than... the extended cut which that are in then? I don't know. I, I mean, oh, okay, it's something that I, I've not. I've watched because it's another four. I think it's another forty minutes on top of the film. Anyway, that's already a long film, isn't it, Leon? Yeah. Yeah. And what's your final choice then, Matt? Okay, last one. I'm going for Ed Furlong and Terminator Two. Oh hey! Again, just fourteen years old when this one was released, and I think Ed Furlong is the epitome of the stereotype child star that goes off the rails. And it pains me to say that because I really like this film. I like his performance in it. And he subsequently went on to do American History X, which I've championed enough on this podcast. <laughs> it's in my top three of all time. But it, it is spiral into depravity seemed to coincide off the back of that one. So whilst he, he got out of child superstardom, it, it went wrong very quickly for him, unfortunately. Uh, he definitely lost it. In his 20s, he, he certainly got through his teenage years just about okay, although I'm sure he was probably sniffing stuff <laughs> at a relatively <laughs> early age. But it's fair to say his, his teens are about as rock and roll as it can get, and you land the role of, of John Connor at like 13, 14 years old. It's going to have a, a detrimental effect on you to a certain degree. But he excellently portrays the cool streetwise and Atari hacking kid who reluctantly accepts his fate into being the leader of the human race after Judgment Day. And what I like about his performance in this is, for for someone relatively young, he has some great snappy delivery of lines in there. And some of the the film's quotes, which you would naturally attribute to Arnold Schwarzenegger, actually originate from Ed Furlong or or the John Connor characters, such as the Astle of Vista Baby, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And I think people forget that. Yeah. Uh, if you're ever going to quote it, you'll quote it as Arnold Schwarzenegger, but it was actually he who did it first. And he's very convincing as this little brat who has to grow up very rapidly as this war zone is thrust upon him in, in Los Angeles as he's being pursued by the, the Terminator 1000 and the impending decline of the future, which he's been uh, convinced is going to happen. Uh, through uh, his mother Sarah Connor that we all know the, the backstory to the Terminator so I won't go into that too much but I really like the role, I think he's cool his lines are punchy and he shows decent emotional range, particularly towards the end of the film where he goes from at the start being this angsty teenager of a bad attitude to showing a lot of uh, love towards his family and to the Terminator who he's developed a great uh, friendship with even if it is sort of artificial because the Terminator isn't there to be his friend, it's there to protect him, but you can definitely see that they've borrowed something from one another, and I think it's a great performance on the back of that. And it's worth noting that this particular performance earned him a Saturn Award for Best Young Actor that year, as well as an MTV Movie Award, whatever that's worth, for Best Breakthrough. So it should have been the start of what should have been a really great career, but he probably found out all too quickly that it wasn't going to be easy money. 
unfortunately. Okay. Um, so excellent choices from all of us. Owen, how have our listeners fared on Twitter? Mentioned a couple of them already, but let's uh, yeah, a couple of them. Off the rest. A couple of them um, seem to be in agreement with what we've chosen already. But also, we had some like um, kind of left field choices from a few people. Rick Buren at Rick Buren on Twitter said Toto in Cinema Paradiso. Uh, he also said the kid in My Life as a Dog. Faruza Bulk, I think that's how you say the name yeah. in Return to Oz. That's a great one. <laughs> I've never I've never seen it, but it's um... a fucked up movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, he also mentioned a couple of those, including uh, for light relief, he said Lane Tom in Charlie Chan at the Olympics, which is that's what I mean by left field. I was actually at Rick Buren's flat at the weekend because we both went to see Al Pacino, this Al Pacino Q and A. Um, he's got every Charlie Chan film on box set, which is amazing ever. to look at. Ever? Yeah, all of them. Oh wow! Which is it's incredible, yeah. Um, we also had Liam at Elmore LTM. He's written for the site a few times as well. Um, he said he sh- he's sure Andy, as in Andrew, who recommended this triple bill in the first place. He said, he's sure Andy would have recommended Monsieur Lazar, which is a great show. There's some fantastic child performances in there. He said I did add Innocent Voices, Wajda, Osama, I Am Callum, and Beasts of the Southern Wild. So, again, some more left-field choices, but Beasts of the Southern Wild proved to be quite popular. We had a lot of people picking Beasts of the Southern Wild. Rick Purian again went back and suggested that at the end. Uh, Andrew Odell, at Odell Andy on Twitter, also picked Beasts of the Southern Wild. He also picked Tatum O'Neill in Paper Moon, um, which is another one I've not seen, but is like a really highly regarded performance. Uh, have any of you seen Paper Moon? By any chance? No. 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 Well, Tatum was the youngest person to win an Academy Award, apparently. Um, and I'm going to really... I'm not going to pronounce her name very well. Kavazani from Beasts of the Southern Wild. I don't know how you say her name, really. She was the youngest actress to receive a nomination, apparently. So there you go. It's a bit of trivia for you there. We had um, at Elab49 recommended Roddy McDowell. Uh for uh, one of the, a few bright spots in How Green, Mara Wilson in Matilda, which I was thought was a really brilliant uh, nomination that didn't even cross my na- uh, mind. Um, but yeah, she was very good in that. Um, so yeah, we had quite a few. Um, I don't think I'll read out the ball because, but I was really pleased we had loads that were nominated. Chris Murphy at Murphy's Boredom says Stand by Me has some excellent performances. He said River Phoenix or Will Wheaton were my my choices. So there's a few there. The cast of the Goonies, just the entire cast of the Goonies he picked. Uh, Brooker said Mike Hughes, uh, who played Gage Creed in as the the crazy zombie baby with a scalpel in Pet Cemetery. That was his his uh, his pick there. So yeah, we had some great suggestions from people. So you know, thank you very much to everyone who sent some in. Um, and again, yeah, just a final thanks to to Andrew for picking this. And we will get round to choosing some more of those um, those suggestions from people that we had for the, the 150th episode. We'll cram them into some podcasts there throughout the year, I think. Okay. Finally, then, um, before we go this evening, is the recommendations for the week ahead on going. Channel 4, Sunday night at 9 o'clock is Shutter Island. Good film. Um, Owen? Um, so I'm going for a film by... a director called Zhang Yimou, 
who did House of the Flying Daggers that I mentioned earlier. What's it's that? on. Yeah, it's really good. But he also. This is one of his earlier films from 1987. It's on film four on sort of Thursday evening slash Friday morning, 1:15 a.m. Called Red Sorghum, which is uh, a an arranged marriage in a 1920s Chinese community. But it's it's really entertaining, really interesting. And the, you'll like this a lot, Mike, I think, because I know you like House of Flying Daggers, but also the use of music throughout it is, is amazing. They use some like drum beats, which are really good, and some chanting. Okay. Worth a watch. It's really interesting. I'll record uh, that then. Matt? I love a good courtroom drama, me. So I'm going for Saturday night at 10 o'clock on the Sony Movie Channel, which you can find on Sky, uh, Rules of Engagement, starring uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Samuel L. Jackson. Okay, and finally, Mike. I'll go for a new release on DVD and Blu-ray, which is Big Hero 6. Oh, yeah, it's come out, hasn't it? It came out yesterday, or yeah. Monday. Yeah. And it's just brilliant. Disney okay. at its best. Okay, well that's all for this week's Fail Critics podcast. Thanks for everyone who's listened uh, and read the website. Uh, if you don't know where the website is, it's www.failedcritics.com. We're also on Twitter at Failed Critics. Um, we'll be back around about the same time next week with another podcast. The Failed Critics Podcast is presented by Steve Norman and Owen Hughes, created by James Diamond, with original music provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, remixed by James Yule of JamesYule.com. You can find us at FailedCritics.com, on Twitter at FailedCritics, and Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash FailedCritics. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.